Our opening words today come from an in-depth sociological study called Habits of the Heart, Individualism and Commitment in American Life, in which the authors, led by Robert M. Bella, provided remarkable insights as to how individualism developed and influenced today's society. Quote, the American dream is often a very private dream of being the star, the uniquely successful and admirable one, the one who stands out from the crowd of ordinary folk who don't know how. And since we have believed in that dream for a long time and worked very hard to make it come true, it is hard for us to give it up, even though it contradicts another dream that we have, that of living in a society that would really be worth living in. I've got a reading this morning. And it's from someone who's probably the most important person in my life. My wife wrote this. She's a health and safety professional, so she had to know a little bit about this stuff. For any of you who are familiar with psychology and behaviorism, I'm sure you're familiar with Abraham Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, published in 1943 in his paper, A Theory of Human Motivation. In order to understand what motivates people to do what they do, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is essential reading. The theory is represented by a pyramid with categories of needs uh, arranged hierarchically and is intended to describe the stages of human growth and what motivates them. It shows that in order for a motivation to occur, each level must be satisfied before the person can move up to the next level. Therefore, a person's psychological needs must be satisfied first, which are basic survival, including health, food, water, shelter, and sleep. After these needs are met, the person's then motivated by the desire to feel secure and safe from harm. Then the person is motivated by social acceptance needs, the need to have friends, intimate relationships, family relationships, feelings of belonging. After that, the person wants to gain self-esteem or the desire to develop self-respect, gain the approval of others, and achieve personal success. At the top of the pyramid in Maslow's original diagram is self-actualization. This is to be the realization of one's full potential, to be all you can be wherever it is you want to be. Maslow believed that in order to understand this level, a person must not only succeed in the previous needs, but master them before the person can achieve the highest goal for themselves. This concept from psychological needs to self-actualization is missing a very important aspect, one which Maslow himself realized in his later life. They don't teach this in school. Before his death in 1970, Maslow amended his hierarchy pyramid to include one last category at the top, self-transcendence. He argued that we experience the highest level of development by focusing on some higher goal outside ourselves. Rather than focusing solely on oneself, the release of egocentricity or caring about others is the ultimate. Maslow said transcendence refers to the very highest and most inclusive or holistic levels of human consciousness, behaving and relating as ends rather than means, to oneself, 
to significant others, to human beings in general, to other species, to nature, and the cosmos. According to John Messerly in his summary of Maslow on self-transcendence, placing self-transcendence above self-actualization results in a radically different model. While self-actualization refers to filling your own potential, self-transcendence puts your own needs aside to serve something greater than yourself. In the process, self-transcenders may have what Maslow calls peak experiences in which they transcend personal concerns. In such mystical, aesthetic, or emotional states, one feels intense joy, peace, well-being, and an awareness of ultimate truth and the unity of all things. I invite you to consider where you are in the hierarchy of needs and think about how caring about others can shape our world. As I said this at the beginning, we're going to talk about individualism. Individualism is pretty endemic to our society. The attitude is everywhere in our culture. It influences everything. The entertainment industry regularly tells stories of individual heroism the lonely epic journey towards self-fulfillment. And, and TV provides a constant diet of game and reality shows that pit individuals against each other in competitions for wealth, fame, and glory. Competition has gone before, but, uh, beyond sports arenas into every corner of our culture and reinforces the notion that each of us is solely responsible for achievement of the American dream, which more and more equates with celebrity and extreme wealth. The American story originated from, from that of Western European culture, which emerged from a feudal, pre-modern worldview that the organized principles of society, politics, religion, and economics were essentially the same. In other words, leaders, politics, were appointed by gods, religion, who would then determine if there was enough food and who would get it economics. But then Western thought developed an increased awareness of the self and the individual's ability to know via his own experience. As people began to trust their own experience and empirical sensibilities, the focal point of knowledge shifted away from the king, clergy, or nobleman as the arbiter of reality. The psychic currency of honor, order, duty, and allegiance crumbled. The meeting offices of king, clergy, and noble, each specific to their own realm, became disenfranchised against the new consciousness. Modern Western thinking eventually largely replaced reliance on authorities with personal and scientific inquiry, freedom of religious belief, economic self-determinism, and notions of self-government good progress. The term individualism, however, was coined in the early days of the American Republic by Alexis de Tocqueville to describe what he saw as a unique feature of the new nation he visited from France 
in the 1830s. While Europe has a, a long history of monarchy and aristocracy, the New Republic largely discarded those trappings of feudalism and instead thought of itself as a meritocracy, where personal initiative and hard work would result in governance by those best willing and able to achieve success and status. Tocqueville was attempting to assess whether such democratic societies would be able to maintain free political institutions or whether they might slip into some new kind of despotism. He appreciated the commercial and entrepreneurial spirit that earlier writers had noted, but he saw it as having an ambiguous and problematic implications for the future of American freedom. In America, he said, I have seen the freest and best educated of men in circumstances the happiest to be found in the world. Yet it seems to me that a cloud habitually hung on their brow. And they seem serious and almost sad even in their pleasures. Because they, quote, never stop thinking of the good things they have not got. The restlessness and sadness in pursuit of the good life is intensified, says de Tocqueville, by the competition of all in which the United States replaces the aristocratic privilege of some. So the efforts and enjoyments of Americans are livelier than in traditional societies, but the disappointments of their hopes and desires are keener, and their, quote, minds are more anxious and on edge. Sound familiar? How could such restless, competitive, and anxious people sustain during enduring relationships when they clutch everything and hold nothing fast. Our opening words came from the book Habits of the Heart, which found much of the same in today's society. Quote, we Americans have always wanted to make something of ourselves. We have aspired to be self-confident and energetic, trusting that by dint of hard work and good character, we could achieve self-respect and integrity in an open society. Looking around at what is happening to us as a nation, however, Everywhere we find uneasiness about the soundness of our society and concern about its future. More and more of us doubt whether we can trust our institutions, our elected officials, our neighbors, or even our ability to live up to our own expectations for our lives. And anxiety is always close to the surface, a haunting fear that things have somehow gone wrong. For many Americans, these fears come to a head in worries about crime, moral decline, and the deepening divides of income and opportunity. There's a gnawing uncertainty about the future of our jobs, of adequate income, and of our family life, especially our children's welfare. We are divided, we're told, by race, by culture, by creed, by differing views of the national identity, but we are united, as it turns out, in at least one core belief the belief that economic success or misfortune is the individual's responsibility and his or hers alone. Currently, American cultural traditions, traditions define personality, achievement, and the purpose of human life in ways that leave the individual suspended in glorious but terrifying isolation. For several centuries, we've been embarked on a great effort to increase our freedom, wealth, and power. For over a hundred years, a large part of the American people, the middle class, has imagined that the virtual meaning of life lies in the acquisition of ever-increasing status, income, and authority from which genuine freedom is supposed to come. 
Our achievements have been enormous. They permit us the aspiration to become a genuinely humane society in a genuinely decent world and provide many of the means to attain that aspiration. Yet, we seem to be hovering on the very brink of disaster, not only from international conflict, but the internal incoherence of our own society. Beyond the problem of isolation, anxiety, and uncertainty created by an individualist culture, there are very real dangers that have begun to manifest themselves in our society. Forces have worked to recreate pre-modern thinking, develop structures to gain and maintain control in ways reminiscent of feudalism, religious oppression, and, un and political despotism. For example, the growth of an economy dominated by unregulated multinational corporations has taken power away from people, both consumers and workers, and placed it in the hands of wealthy elites and a whole class of managers that actively work to divide and control our lives. The corporate structure is a bastion of pre-modern thought processes. Hierarchically, they have a king at the top, the CEO, and each little slice of the hierarchy has a boss. And the subordinate, the worker, must always do what he's called or he'll be fired, calling to mind that gruesome practice of burning insubordinates, otherwise known as heretics, at the stake. A worker's life is served, lived in similar relationship to the bosses as the life of peasants to the aristocracy. Furthermore, the sense of isolation resulting from individualism makes a society more susceptible to authoritarian movements. According to one author, Nazism could only get a foothold where pre-modern consciousness was widespread, both in the structure of and its ranks, as well as the power wielded in society through the entire industrial complex of Germany, required this pre-modern consciousness to serve that kind of state interest. Honor, order, duty, allegiance. They make the work of the tyrant so much simpler. Unfortunately, modern populist movements appear to have such authoritarian tendencies, especially when infused with appeals to racism that are designed to maintain patriarchal, capitalist, and supremacist, white supremacist power. So how do we mitigate the damage and change the story going forward? Tocqueville argues that while the physical circumstances of the United States certainly contributed to the maintenance of a democratic republic, laws have contributed more than those circumstances and more raise, the unwritten laws, more than them. Indeed, he stresses throughout his, his book that the mores have been the key to the American success in establishing and maintaining a free republic and that undermining American mores is that most certain road to undermining the free institutions of the United States. He speaks of mores somewhat loosely, defining them as habits of the heart, the term Bella and his co-authors used in their book. These are notions, opinions, and ideas that shape mental habits and the sum of moral and intellectual dispositions of men in society. That's what he called them. Mores seem to involve not only ideas and opinions, but habitual practices with respect to such things as religion, political participation, and economic life. 
the mores that Tocqueville referenced can still be seen today in the traditions that support our society and its government. We expect everyone, especially our leaders, to keep their promises, refrain from nepotism and self-dealing, and treat all people fairly and with respect. Don't we? The concept that no one is above the law is also a key mori. While there's no formal law establishing the rule of law, the principles that have been cited in court opinions that have the force of law. There may be no statutes requiring all these things, but they are mores and represent a tradition that supports our democratic system. These mores guided the society in the earliest days of the Republic and need to be protected and restored today. Following Tocqueville, Abraham Lincoln tried to mold public opinion by showing the people where they had fallen short of their own ideals, their own better angels. Lincoln refused to adopt the views of the American public when they conflicted with America's own ancient faith. Lincoln was deeply committed to majority rule but he also believed, as Tocqueville did, that the, quote, popular opinions and sentiments of the majority needed to be educated. By educating Americans about their first principles, Lincoln not only saved the Union, but helped ensure that it would be a, wor a Union worthy of the saving. The story of Unitarian Universalism with respect to individualism developed in parallel with that of the country. And we need to accept our own role in perpetuating a devotion to individualism. Indeed, there may be no one more fiercely independent than a Unitarian Universalist. I grew up as one. After all, many of us found this faith after experiencing religion and in another group where creedal belief was required and enforced by clergy and or family. Our hymns are filled with references to freedom of thought and belief in reaction to oppressive religious institutions. As a result, many UUs are very sensitive to any perceived threat to their freedom to believe as they wish, rightfully so. Unfortunately, this sometimes manifests in strong reactions to any reference to religious, especially Christian beliefs, or even the mention of God. And this can, can and has made people of other faiths feel very uncomfortable being among us. This is not surprising, though, given the teachings of our Unitarian forebear, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Waldo, in his famous essay, Self-Reliance, preached, Whoso would be a man would be a nonconformist. Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. No law can be sacred to me but that of my own nature. Further, insist on yourself, never imitate. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing can bring you peace but the triumph of principles. Therefore, do not tell me, as a good man did today, of my obligations to put all poor men in good situations. Are they my poor? I tell thee, thou foolish philanthropist, that I grudge the dollar, the dime, the cent I give to such men as do not belong to me and to whom I do not belong. Clearly, radical individualist philosophy did not start with Ayn Rand. 
In the words of the recently retired minister of the Annapolis congregation, Fred Muir, individualism will not serve the greater good, a principle to which we have committed ourselves. Little or nothing about the ideology and theology of individualism encourages people to work and live together, to create and support institutions that serve common aspirations and beloved principles. The 2019 UUA General Assembly recognized this with its theme of the power of we, which explicitly focused all programming on moving from I to we. This is the UUA's countervailing theme that unites us and binds us together as a movement, a covenant that says, as free congregations, we promise to one another our mutual trust and support. We are a covenantal religion, and we have a principle for supporting each other in our individual searches for truth and meaning. Upon this, a community may be created, one that aspires towards beloved community, a community that could achieve reconciliation among people and raise interpersonal relations to a level where justice would prevail and each would attain his or her own full human potential, maybe transcendence. It is the community that supports, nurtures, and helps us to define each person's individuality. And those individuals, in turn, create support and constantly redefine the community. It's a symbiotic relationship. While our movement has started de-emphasizing individualism and towards beloved community, we enlarge a society of a long way to go. While the freedom of thought and religion that Emerson promoted is still a major foundation of our faith, we don't have to accept the deification of individualism and allow it to govern every aspect of our lives, our economy, our society. To help in moving towards a culture of community, we can learn from many of the most oppressed by today's toxic, dominant culture and its institutions. In her book, Salsa, Soul, and Spirit, Leadership for Multicultural Age, Juana Borges makes a strong case for following the lead of Native American, African American, and Latin American traditions that are not as radically individualistic as the dominant white American culture. These are groups that have resisted assimilation into the dominant white Anglo-male culture and maintained the habits of the heart of their collective-based traditions. The people who inhabited these lands before Europeans arrived lived in societies based on the family, the clan, the tribe, and these groups often shared similar worldviews, a nature-based spirituality, communal values, whereby the good of the tribe supersedes the individual. Similarly, Latin American core values include faith, family, work, honesty, sharing, inclusion, and cooperation. And among those stolen from Africa in their homelands and enslaved in this country, community wasn't just important, but necessary for survival. Deprived of family, clan, and village, enslaved people created communities among those thrown together in bondage. This culture continued through Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and even to this day. This tradition blossomed during the Civil Rights Movement, infusing American leadership with a new moral fiber. These groups are among those that the Unitarian Universalists, including our legislative ministry, are partnering with on social justice issues. 
We're learning to center our justice efforts on these oppressed people, learn from them, and take direction from them. Those of us raised to be white are transforming our white savior attitudes into a new belief in collective liberation, one that realizes that joining in community is essential to success in remaking our culture and the institutions it supports. We must be humble and acknowledge that we can learn from people of color about solidarity and community, and together we can create, create a new future. And if we want people from marginalized communities in our congregations, we will need to practice what the UUA calls preemptive radical inclusion. This means acting as if those you we want to invite in are already present. Some of our members might be surprised that many are already here, hoping to be recognized for their value to our community, regardless of race, class, wealth, sex, gender identity, and so forth. Things we don't usually talk about. A compassionate community is based on love and hope, not fear and hatred. Those surrounded by love and hope lose their suspicion of others and develop a sense of trust. What better antidote to the poison of hatred than the balm of love? We can reach out with compassion for those who taught to see the world as dog-eat-dog, where they must struggle alone against everyone else to support themselves and their families, or to seek fame and celebrity to prove themselves that they even exist. That's what selfies are. We have a better vision to offer, one which we support each other and seek common goals, the success of all in a sustainable world. So let us as you use accept our part in promoting freedom of thought and belief, but temper our strident individualism that hampers community. Let us acknowledge the role that individualism has had, both in American success and its fundamental harm to our social fabric. And let us listen to our siblings of color and work with them to co-create the next part of our story, one that works towards common goals, includes everyone in the process, and builds a true beloved community. It might just save the soul of our nation. For the benediction today, these sermons that I do around the state are part of the grounding we have for our advocacy work. It's important to know what values we have and what we promote. And it's part of the praxis we ground ourselves in our values and our principles, go out and do the important work, come back and share victories and defeats, commiserate, reestablish our grounding and our values and go back out and do it again. From Habits of the Heart, we have never been and still are not a collection of private individuals who except for a conscious contract to create minimal government, have nothing in common. Our lives make sense in a thousand ways, 
most of which we are unaware of because of traditions that are centuries, if not millennia, old. It is these traditions that help us know that it does not does make a difference who we are and how we treat one another. Though the processes of separation and individuation were necessary to free us from the tyrannical structures of the past, they must be balanced by a renewal of commitment and community if they are not to end in self-destruction or turn into their opposites. Such a renewal is indeed a world waiting to be born if only we had the courage to see it.